Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to All Rather Mysterious, the podcast that aims to unlock the mysteries of the past with the key of fact. My name is John Rain. My name is Eleanor Morton. My name is David Reed. Please join us as we present to you mysteries that have baffled the world. You had any noises? What about um, a door creaking? Uh, no, uh, you don't have to do that. That weird kadook that yeah, lights going off makes for some reason in films. <laughs> All rather mysterious. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. you pop craze youngsters and welcome to part two of episode 57 of chart music i'm your host al needham here i am once again with my good friends simon price hello and neil called hello there boys this episode uh, it's always a treat to go back to the early 70s isn't it yes it's a joy i think the i mean you know we've we've discussed various golden periods this for me is an absolute mm. golden period. I love these episodes. Yeah, not only for the music, we are going to see some, you know, some pretty fucking massive names uh, mm. at the peak of their careers. But I think we're going to find that the attention to detail is is just a cut above from some of the top of the pops as we've covered already. Yeah, I feel this was uh, top of the pops in its prime at its most proper, and that even though there were other good eras after this, those eras were all in some way harking back to this, trying to recapture some of that excitement that um, the, the Thursday night appointment in 1973 would have had. Definitely. Yeah. By now they're apprehending just how many viewers they've got. So every, every single yeah. aspect of this episode is fine-tuned in a sense. The graphics, everything, mm. the camera work, everything is at a really high standard. All right, then, pulp craze youngsters. It's time to stop fannying about as we get down to 73. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. It's 20 past seven on Thursday, October the 11th, 1973. And despite being one of the BBC's highest rated entertainment shows with an average audience of 11 million, despite having just completed a milestone which has cemented its reputation as a flagship programme, despite being the 12th most watched programme in the UK, and despite being a pop show in a boom period for pop, Top of the Pops, unbelievably, is under attack on both sides. 
Last week, it broadcast its 500th episode, which it celebrated with an hour-long special which featured special messages from Slade, Mick Jagger, The Osmonds, and Gary Glitter drinking champagne in bed, <laughs> Tony Blackburn slow dancing with Lindsay DePaul, a rare appearance by The Who, a double performance by Tony Orlando and Dawn, and topped off with the man of the hour, David Cassidy pretending to have flown into Heathrow to be interviewed by Tony Blackburn and mine both sides of his new single. The next day, the papers lined up to give it and the show in general a proper shoeing. Miriam alone in the Daily Mirror. The old thing creaked. Getting to be 500 is no joke, and despite many cheer-up messages for its birthday, refused to buck up. Terry Metcalf in the Birmingham Post said, BBC One, ill-informed enough to believe that the 500th edition of Top of the Pops was worth shouting about, (laughs) showed us how not to present pop on the box. All it promoted was an atmosphere that was utterly sterile. An aerial in the Liverpool Echo, possibly not its real name, said Top of the Pops celebrated its 500th edition last night. It's obviously wowed the motley collection in the studio, but if this is really entertainment, there's something sadly wrong with the lot of us. It might have been more interesting if the programme had been devised in flashback form to demonstrate how the pop scene has changed since the Mersey beat electrified the world. But to do so might well have demonstrated how devoid of real talent it has all become. Personalities have been replaced by tinsel and garish paints. The mediocrity of the song and the singing has been disguised by lurid and meaningless costumes. Lyrics, for the most part, have become either a meaningless jumble of words or have moved into the sick, sick world of deviation and morbidity. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking hell. Makes it sound amazing. That episode, the 500th episode, it doesn't just get it in the neck from sort of the mainstream newspapers. The music press do see it as this kind of totemic symbol of everything that's wrong with pop. And it mm. gets just remorselessly slagged. And and as with most of these things, it becomes a scapegoat where you can kind of start blaming every single complex aspect of the problems in society on top of the pops to a certain yeah. extent and how shit it's become. Um, so, yeah, this this episode that we're looking at is coming out of, of a pretty atrocious week for Top of the Pops in terms of its perception. We'd love to cover the 500th edition of Top of the Pops, but the BBC wiped it. <laughs> <laughs> there are bits and bobs floating about but there's no complete episode which is fucking stupid it's weird that this one has been preserved in all this colorful glory but the the 500th one yeah that so much fucking effort mm. went into yeah yeah isn't that that's mad. that tells you everything about uh 1970s bbc and you know doctor who fans will will cry about this and yeah yeah it's it, exactly videotape was like rarer than it was like platinum you know <laughs> do you know what they probably kept more kind of fanny craddock cookery shows than they oh, did yeah. top of the pops yes i would wager because <laughs> had a weird weird idea of priorities and what people would want to see in the future. That was just pop, isn't it? It's throwaway, yeah, disposable. Yeah. yeah, that's it. It's not cultural history. It's it's still that low culture thing, isn't it? Exactly. And the whole reason that we're able to put out this chart-topping, fantastic podcast uh, every month is, is that paradox, isn't it? It's that um, culture that yeah. was considered throwaway, ephemeral, disposable at the time ends up being the most enduring and the most rich in terms of resonance mm. and memories and so on. And I guess nobody saw that at the time. Nobody would have predicted it. Although I suspect we get a better flavour 
of 73 and the culture from the actual episode we're looking at today rather than the 500th one, where it would have been more organised by the producers. It would have featured Mm. more content that wasn't, you know, people performing on stage. The joy of this episode is everything that's great about Top of the Pops in the era. Not only the music that we hear, but the audience. And I doubt the Mm. audience featured much in the 500th episode. And I wonder if those articles that you quoted there were from writers who maybe had kind of zoned out, tuned out of Top of the Pops several years earlier, but they felt obliged to watch the big one the 500 um and yeah you know pop had moved on God, where's where's sandy yeah, yeah exactly gone? what's going so, on so really <laughs> they're revealing more about themselves than they are about top of the pops even worse the papers are starting to talk up a young live hard punching contender in the pop tv heavyweight division for nearly 10 years, Top of the Pops has been the only successful pop music show on BBC One, says the Daily Mirror's TV column. Now there is stiffening competition from the old grey whistle test. Bob Harris, the resident host, is Ooh. the DJ they're all talking about. No gimmicks, just a sound knowledge of the music scene. <laughs> Mark Rock. Mm quality (laughs) and even worse than that the daily mirror is gunning for pop music and top of the pops in particular as they cry won't somebody think of the children (laughs) last week they published a piece entitled daughters in danger a worried mother writes to the mirror Are our children growing up in a sex-mad world in which they are targets for erotic magazines, TV programmes and advertisements? One mother believes this to be true. She is so frightened about the future of her 10-year-old daughter that she wrote to the mirror. Here is what she says. (laughs) My daughter is 10 years old, yet she looks 13 and talks and behaves as I did when I was 16. (laughs) I meet her sometimes from school and watch her and her friends crowding through the gates, chattering and giggling. Wearing little t-shirts and tight trousers or full-length skirts, they look more like typists leaving the office. It's not just their appearance that is frighteningly mature. Listen to these children. Their talk is all about pop stars and boyfriends and who fancies them. (laughs) I worry about Top of the Pops the television programme they all watch every Thursday. It's not like the 6-5 special of my day when vivacious youngsters belted out good tunes. It puts over sex far more blatantly. Its stars are men dressed as women in bizarre makeup and multicoloured hair. It puts over eroticism and fantasies which have become the staple diet of every young adolescent in the country. Of course, I could forbid it and face a row with my daughter every week and her angry cry, but all the others are allowed to watch it. I know. I've tried. I prefer to know what she's doing or watching rather than have her deceive me. I have to face the fact that I can't shut her up safely protected from the dangers and influences of this society she's growing up in. Or will she end up another tragic statistic on the list of girls pregnant (laughs) at 15 or 14 or even 13? Could I be taking my daughter to the hospital for an abortion in three years' time? Jesus Christ! 
no name on the letter there, and uh, the hand rises to the chin. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, personally, I find it hard to believe that the 10-year-old girls of 1973 were looking at Roy Wood and Jimmy Osmond and thinking, <laughs> oh, God, I really need to get pregnant in three years' yeah, time. Yeah, but even if they were thinking about these pop stars sexually, the idea that that's a new thing... You know, mm. the idea that girls in the mid-60s screaming at the Beatles didn't fancy the Beatles. thats It's kind of ridiculous. But yeah, they weren't screaming because they were scared of them, were they? Well, I mean, it's a creeping thing that you see throughout the, the 70s, this fear of the sexualization of children um, in a huge way. And then, you know, later, this, this is just another example of, I don't know, what we'd see... 10, 15 years later, when Tipper Gore hears her daughter, you know, singing Darling Nikki by Prince and starts the Mm. whole Parents Music Resource Centre thing, it's exactly the same uh, moral scapegoat in moral panicking. Also, um, this worried mum saying that Top of the Pops puts over sex far more blatantly than 6-5 Special. Now, all right, 6-5 Special is very tame by modern standards, but wasn't, like, Little Richard on there, pretty sure, you know? Um, I mean, come on. Um, You mentioned Roy Wood there, Al, uh, because, yeah, there's that bit about bizarre makeup and multicoloured hair. And I I did check three weeks earlier, Wizard had been on doing Angel Fingers, so that's probably what inspired that bit. Mm. And uh, I I read the whole thing. There's a few bits you didn't pick out, but they jumped out to me. There's a bit where uh, she goes, there are, and she's talking about teen magazines now, too many good-looking boyfriends and moonlit endings where the young couple would walk hand-in-hand into a rosy and oh-so-false future. And like you just know that she's necking a strong gin and bitter lemon on that last bit, isn't she? Like, oh, don't talk to me about... Boyfriends. Proper Edna Krabappel business going on there. Absolutely there? perfect comparison, Edna Krabappel. Yeah, yeah. But on this very day, October the 11th, 1973, The Mirror ran a public opinion special where actual real life mums had their say. Mrs. Isabel Rushton of Stoke on Trent said, For a worried mother to say that Top of the Pops has any more bizarre an influence than 6 5 Special Ad in the late 50s shows how short her memory is. Yeah. I well remember the outcry and condemnation which went with Bill Haley, Tommy Steele, and Elvis the Pelvis. (laughs) I can also recall wearing a tight pencil skirt and high heels at 13, having to pay full bus fare, and getting in by myself to see a daring A film. On the other hand, concerned mother of Exeter writes, I have banned my two girls, seven and eight, from watching Top of the Pops. I don't care if it makes me unpopular. I am responsible for their moral welfare. Asking around, I find that I am not the only mother who won't let her children watch these weird-looking creatures. As a counterpoint, F. Fryer of Oxford says, I have a daughter of ten. She watches Top of the Pops and buys a pop magazine every week. She also has posters of Slade on her bedroom wall. But this daughter of mine still believes in witches and Halloween, reads fairy stories and plays with dolls. And that girl grew up to be Toya Wilcox. <laughs> Neil, would would you let your daughters marry this episode of Top of the Pops? Without a doubt. I mean, the thing is with these parents, this this desire to exert this fanatical control over every aspect of their kids' lives, what they're raising there is good liars, really. Mm. Those girls are going to grow up to know how to hide yeah. and not, not let their parents know the, the shit that they're getting up to. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, I, I'm a somewhat less controlling parent. I kind of, 
Um, yeah, I kind of know what my girls are up to, I hope. I see things that they watch on YouTube. For fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but how am I going to stop that? And I hear the language coming out of the kids when they come out of their schools. And bloody hell, you know, those kids are way ahead. So yeah. what's really identifiable in a lot of these responses, that phrase, these alien creatures or yes. whatever that person said, there's a real sort of venomous response to the increasing androgyny of, of male pop stars, I mm. think, in this era. era. And a lot of these responses... This fear of, yeah, that androgyny that's suddenly been injected into pop. The thing is, go back to that question I'll ask you, Neil, about whether you'd let your, your daughters marry this uh, episode of Top of the Pops. The thing, <laughs> thing with your kids is, um, they know you, right? So you yeah. can't say anything. They know that you were hanging around with, you know, Marilyn Manson yeah. in the 90s. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. you've been there and done that. And, like, and, and, you know, you can't say to them, stay away from this satanic evil influence, even if you wanted to. No, of course not. And, and you know, I mean, my, my youngest, she keeps clinging to the fact that, you know, my, my, my wife told her that when my wife was 13... She was hitching rides out of London and going to gigs at the Marquee and all of yeah. this kind of behaviour. So my daughter's always like, do I have to turn up to that lesson? Mum used to bunk off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's a weird one. But, you know, these, yeah, these parents are going are gonna to raise kids who just, you know, are going to go the other way. They're mm. going to deliberately kind of engage in all kinds of bad behaviour probably just to piss their parents off. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're raising little monsters, these concerned parents. Your daughter would watch this episode of Top of the Pops and go, fucking hell, where's Sabbath? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck's sake. She did watch it and she loved it, you know? I mean, yeah. I don't get how anyone could find Top of the Pops, you know, threatening in this fashion. Mm. You know, even for young girls, I think they're just misremembering their own pasts and the fact that, you know, when you're a little kid, eight through till about 12 and being a teenager, you're feeling things. You're not a completely blank slate, yes. if you like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You are starting to feel things about pop. You know, you just have to accept that and talk about them in a way. Um, yeah. I, I remember looking at my daughter's face when she first saw Adam Ant, <laughs> right? Yeah. And she was about nine years old when she saw... And there was a just it was confusion and it was delight and it's a complicated response mm. you know uh, these kind of parents don't afford their kids that complexity of response really it's all just about oh they must they must be blank-eyed worshippers mm. at, the, at these pop star sort of altars and that's not really the way it works there's a lot no. more sort of argument and discussion about pop amongst young people that these parents are just not you know, cognizant of at all. This yeah. entire podcast um, is predicated on us digging back into those confused feelings that that we yeah. had watching yeah. Top yeah, of the yeah. Pop. So, yeah, we can't pretend that that's not a thing. From those uh, readers' letters, my favourite bit, and it's only a slight a little little detail, but one of them said, "When the time comes, I want my daughter to marry someone else's respectable son." I just yes. <laughs> that made me laugh, respectable <laughs> son. But I I did wonder what specifically has happened on Top of the Pops in the last few weeks to freak them all out so much, all these mums, yeah. right? And yeah. I had a look, and the probable answer, right? Yeah, I think I know what it is. Yeah, two out of the three previous weeks, <laughs> the suite have been on with yes. Ballroom Blitz. There right? we go. <laughs> so, right, these mums writing in, they're all worried that their daughters will turn into the girl in the corner that no one ignores because she thinks she's the passionate one. <laughs> uh, or, um, or that their sons will turn into the man in the back who says everyone attack. Mm. It's the sweet who freak them out, definitely. Yeah. Mm. Blame mm. them. Or sweet as they were at that time, of course. I mean, my yeah. dad wouldn't let me watch Top of the Pops, but it wasn't because he was worried that it would make me sexually promiscuous. It was simply because he wasn't interested in watching a load of, in his words, bent cunts who weren't fucking real. <laughs> 
when there was a perfectly serviceable Columbo on ITV at the time. Mm. So I live for bent cunts who aren't fucking real. That's what exactly. I live for. <laughs> they make the world go round. <laughs> but yeah, again, I want you know, I said earlier I wanted to get into a time machine and go on tomorrow's world. Actually I've changed my mind. I want to go in a time machine so I can write a letter to the Daily Mirror for this section and say, Hello everyone. I'm from the year 2021. Uh, the biggest single of last year was two women going on about how drippy their fannies were. <laughs> Yours sincerely, I'll need them. The future. <laughs> Your host for this episode is Kenny Everett. We've already covered Cuddly Ken in chart music number 25, and 1973 has been a turbulent year for Morris Cole. He began it by squatting on various BBC local radio stations, recording shows made at his cottage in Carmarthenshire and sending them off via British Rail Red Star. But when the National Radio Network decided to scrap the practice of broadcasting the Sunday afternoon show Family Favourites simultaneously on Radio 1 and 2 and permanently hosting it on Radio 2, Everett was given an hour-long show on Radio 1 at 1pm between Noel Edmonds and Jimmy Savile, his first appearance on Radio 1 since he was sacked in 1970. As usual, he recorded everything at home, drove the tapes down to Swansea, had them couriered down to London, usually arriving that morning, put on two separate reels so the last half of the show could be edited while the first half was being broadcast. He was immediately fast-tracked into the top of the Pops presenting rotation the same month and would present seven episodes over the summer and autumn of 1973, including being part of last week's special. But he recorded his last show for Radio 1 at the end of last month and it's already been announced that he'll be one of the DJs on the brand new Capital Radio, which launches in five days' time. He'll be presenting Kenny Everett's Clean Air Show from noon till two on Sundays. So, yeah, if you're not in London, this is going to be the last time you're going to see or hear from him for a very long time. Uh. Yeah, and I wasn't in London, so I, I'd never even heard of him until yeah. until he had his TV show. You know, that was, yeah. was a yeah, brand yeah. new figure to me when he suddenly appears, yeah. I was delighted when sent this episode that Kenny Everett was the presenter mm. um, because for the longest time as a kid... I considered Kenny Everett to be the funniest person in the known universe. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, um, he knew how to be funny for puerile kids. You know, yes. progressively bigger asses on Rod Stewart, progressively bigger noses on Streisand or Manilow. That's going to be funny for kids. And when you listen to Kenny Everett radio shows, I found one the other day from 68, and it is very ahead of its time, mm. quite Python-esque, and from the same kind of weird place as Viv Stanchel, in a way. And his his fanatical editorial control over his shows. When we talked about Al, Alan Freeman, yes. as I recall, we talked about how many people copped his style, mm. you know, the way that he talked over records, played one into the other, and kind of what, what Alan Freeman did became the form. Yeah. I would say Kenny Everett is, you know, similarly influential onwards. Yes. But it's almost always a 
bad influence. Yes. A calamitous influence on people like Noel Edmonds. Yeah. Noel Adrian Edmonds always Just. claims Kenny Everett. Adrian yeah, Just, big, yeah. Shaking uh, Kenny yeah. Everett, yeah. This is it, yeah. This kind of... It's the rise of the DJ who thinks they're funny to the point where we now, you know, when you turn on Absolute Radio, you've got these braying teams of unfunny people mm. laughing at each other's unfunniness. Yeah. What I found as I continue to watch the episode is that, man, it didn't work. Um, my, my, my happy memories of the later TV shows and all those characters, that I think the narrative around Everett is that he should have been given more freedom mm. and been left on his own. But I don't think that would have satisfied the audience or him. It was precisely the feel that he was barely tolerated that was part of his appeal. Yeah. And that sense of freewheeling danger in his shows is, is really confected. Everything he does is painstaking. Yes. Stemming, I think, you know, from a sense of self-loathing and self-pity to a certain extent. On the radio, he can control maniacally every single aspect. Yes of his outward projection and editing is really key to him you know on top of the pops he can't do that Mm -hmm. he -hmm. he can't do that I feel some kinship with Everett always because this big gob constantly gets him in trouble but (laughs) the trouble with Kenny Everett on top of the pops is his just wordiness and this uneasy kind of tension between the show and his persona Mm. top of the pops presenters they are stepping into an already demarcated role and it's how they populate the kind of confines of the format yeah. that's key. Kenny Everett, it feels like the whole format at Top of the Pops is straining to fit around his gobbledygook. He's yes. seeing Top of the Pops as a vehicle for himself. Yes. Top of the Pops presenters need to know that no matter how many times they've been on Top of the Pops, Top of the Pops has been on Top of the Pops <laughs> more than them. Yes. And I, I don't think Kenny gets that. And, and that's yes. why there's this uneasy tension throughout this episode. You know, an episode that I was really looking forward to watching. It's not the Kenny bits that I enjoy. They're, they're, mm. they're quite uncomfortable, actually. I think Neil's, uh, Neil's hit several nails on the head there. Sorry. Yes, he has. We might as well just stop this podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> several nails on the head there. First of all, about Kenny Everett being funny to children. Mm. Because, yeah, I probably would have found him hilarious at the time. Secondly, that the thing about, you know, it's fair to call Kenny Everett a radio genius because he certainly was yes. a pioneer in, in his use of pre-recorded carts, etc. You know, and that, but the thing is, yeah, um, as Neil says, that's when he's put the work in. When he's just winging it, yeah. as he is here, mm. the results aren't so great. He's not a natural wit. He's not an off-the-cuff wit. He's not funny in that way. Mm. When we did him the last time, you know, we were quite down on him and... You know, there, there were some people who were quite upset that we were coating him down a bit. But, you know, it's fair to say that him and the BBC in the early 70s was an extremely awkward fit. Yeah. yeah they yeah. wanted him because, as you've said, he is, you know, an absolute radio innovator. And he needs the BBC because it's the biggest platform he can get to at, at the time. Yeah. But it's an awkward fit. God, yeah. As we've discussed before, he was no stranger to television by 1973. He'd already done a string of shows for LWT in the 60s. But yeah, as you've said already, he was a sound technician at heart yeah, and yeah, yeah. therefore an absolute control freak. And the BBC can't stand for that, particularly on a weekly show that gets recorded the night before it goes out. Yeah, yeah, and a show where you've got, I would say, quite strong-willed producers and directors yes. who've been in place for a while, you know. Yeah. I mean, I love the Kenny Everett video show. Yeah, me and, too. You know, so did the pop stars of the time who would, you know, they'd fight to get on it. Yeah. And, I mean, anyone who can convince Cliff yeah. Richard to be hogtied at, uh, yeah. at Kenny Everett's feet <laughs> and then hung up by his thumbs must be doing something right. Mm. 
Mm. I mean, David Bowie went on it, you know. Yes. I mean, oh, that's, the, I mean yeah. The, yeah, the Kenny Everett, I'm not saying the Kenny Everett show taught me everything I know about comedy, but no, no. But what I mean is it provided everything when you were a kid, that show. Slapstick humour, a little bit of sexuality via mm. hot gossip as well. Um, extremely yeah. risque routines. It, it was fantastic. It was as important in the weekly routine as Top of the Pops, the Kenny Everett show. It was a, it was a must watch. Yeah. The, the first time I kind of remember being genuinely helpless with laughter was watching Kenny Everett. And I think it was the one where Rod Stewart mm. repeatedly uh, yeah. goes on and off and his arse grows bigger. Low humour, yeah. but it worked. Yeah, I mean, as a supplement to, to pop music shows, it was fucking brilliant. Mm. But this is top of the pops and you don't fuck with it. And it's very yeah. telling that he walked out on ITV when they put his show right up against top of the pops on Thursday evenings. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We plunge into the anthem that is the top of the Pops Orchestra's version of Whole Lot of Love and are immediately bombarded with Bieber model Tom Fuller keyboards, a long sweep of Piccadilly Circus at night, guitars, flashing lights, and a countdown of numbers from 30 to 1. I love it. My particular favourite being the number 7 with a young Elvis <laughs> yeah. bursting a fist out of it and smashing some records up. Oh, so Pavlovian. It's the best title sequence Top the Pops ever has. Yeah, it's um, a heady whirl, isn't it? It's yeah. amazing. It yeah. sees, yeah, it sees Pop as this kind of weird mix of a, a sleazy casino-based Soho life. And Basically, the numbers mm. on Sesame Street. It's this really weird yes. mix. But yeah. It really, really works. Yes. A kind of avant-garde art as well, and sculpture, yeah. all kinds of weird stuff flying at you. And it's just cut together so quickly. You're just like, you just yeah. don't know what hits you. You think, oh my God, I don't know what world this is launching me into, but I yeah, want to be yeah. part of it. We immediately cut to an exit sign above the studio door. Mm, I think that was a bit of an in-joke. Mm. As a sort of people mill about in the distance, we see Everett, dressed as a comedy yokel, making a dash into a massive studio while the kids are already giving it some soul rail replacement service and the floor <laughs> crew are pegging it out of shot. He stops at an easel with an old BBC publicity shot of him affixed to it, then turns, smiles to reveal some joke shop manky teeth and says, it's me, as we are launched into the top 30 rundown to the sound of the puppy song by David Cassidy. We've already covered David Cassidy, the singer with the nose as long and strong as the side of a mountain and ears like another world of their own in Chart Music 17. And this single, his fifth, is the follow-up to the double A side I'm a Clown slash Some Kind of Summer, which got to number three in April of this year. On the back of him making that clandestine visit to the UK, including the Heathrow appearance where he pretended that he was stopping off on the way to Germany, this tune, The Other Side of Daydreamer, which was written by Harry Nielsen in 1969 when Paul McCartney asked him to provide material for Mary Hopkins' debut LP, has crashed into the charts this week at number eight, this week's highest new entry. I mean, where to start with this? I, mean, I think the first thing we need to say is that this is usually the bit where we have a good old tea and a he over the piss-poor band images, but fucking hell, there's been some severe care and attention lavished on some of these images, haven't there? Yeah, they've done a bit of work, haven't they? A bit of editing on some of them, mm. which is quite light. One little trick that they do uh, quite often that I, I noticed with these is that when it's someone from the old days, right? Uh, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, was it uh, Al, Al Martino... Yeah, Perry Como, um, they, they, they've got sort of sepia-tinted mm. images of them, but they're kind of 
cut out and superimposed on a groovy colour background. Mm. I noticed um, one where they had a little kind of in-joke with it was Bobby Boris Pickett, where it was the same thing, yes. but rather than lit sepia-tinted, it was green-tinted for Halloween. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they found a modern image of him as well. Yeah, yeah. A few sort of random observations I made. Um, the very first one, number 30, Barry Blue, looking the spit of Bob Mortimer, I thought. Check it out. <laughs> yes. Um, the, uh, the Isley Brothers one, and this is another kind of uh, tricksy one. They did. It's very cool, I thought. It's a yeah. black and white yes. black and white cutout of the Isley Brothers against a colour sh- shadow of themselves. It's a really nice effect. The cover of 3 plus 3. Yeah, and oh, the thing with the Isley Brothers, I don't know if you know, is one of their faces is whited out, as if he didn't sign a consent <laughs> form to be in the photo. Yes. Well, that's a bit weird. There was um, the, the the Jackson Five one. They did a muck, bit of mucking around with. I I don't quite get it. There was um, no. a, a, it's Skywriter. Well, the isn't song it? Skywriter. Oh. So presumably that's the pun. But they've got this giant billboard sized Jackson Five picture hanging from underneath mm. the biplane. And so I guess it's a yes. pun on Skywriter. Um, the, the record sleeve of Skywriter does have the Jackson Five gathered round a biplane. So someone at the Beeb was probably mm. riffing with that. But um, yeah, there's a lot of effort to put yeah. in. I like the one, and this is just a simple picture of Manfred Mann's Earth Band just grinning their heads off yes. in a, an, an assortment of hats and headbands. Just They just look so happy to be there, which is nice. Um, mm. there's, there's one of... Um, I can Tina Turner, him looking mean and her yeah. looking scared. Can't imagine why. Um, not not mm. that I should be making light of a very bleak situation. Um, there's a bit of a battle of the Brummies, right? There's mm-hmm. um, e- yes. the ELO picture has Jeff Lynne in a tinsel beard and as if he's taking the piss out yes. of out of the yes. recently departed Roy Wood. Yeah, um, yeah. Meanwhile, there is a wizard one, which is Roy Wood. With his usual mad beard and makeup, but his hair is swept up into this massive quiff, which looks amazing. Yeah, it he mean, looks amazing. It, yes, it? It, it means his head is symmetrical around a horizontal axis, which is quite <laughs> a good look. <laughs> the other thing was that there there are lots of pretty boy pinups. There's uh, Donny Osmond, who's basically just teeth. Of course, uh, you've got David Cassidy, who we just mentioned. Um, also, David Essex, who's all sort of soft focus and dreamy, as if to say, "Hey, yes. we Brits can be handsome too. Don't forget about us," you know. <laughs> and, and of course, being seventy three, you've, you've you've got your glam rockers. Uh, someone's gone; they've gone a bit arty with David Bowie, haven't they? Um, yeah, very much so. Lo- lots of repeated images of his face with the gold circle paint. Yeah, it's like a fly. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Mott the Hoople look amazing. I thought. I mean, yeah. the thing with Mott is obviously they were clearly quite old already to be doing this. Uh, Ian Hunter was thirty four at the time, and uh, Pete Overend oh, Watts has silver hair, which. Could it looks like it could be natural, except he was only twenty six. They all have lots of very macho jewelry around their necks, including a a, a mm. Nazi Iron Cross, and we get a second <laughs> Iron Cross from Sweet. And for once, it mm. isn't even Steve Priest wearing it. Yeah. And there, there was this one of Slade who, who uh, for some reason, is I I don't know if you can explain this one to me. There's a boxing photo superimposed over them. I, I don't know what that was. And Dave no. Hill dressed as a nun. Um, who... Oh, the, the way you black my Oh, eye. God, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, they, yes. They've gone very literal with the lyrics there. And then there's uh, mm. Brian Ferry, who looks like he's... To me, he looked like he's having an angry exchange on Question Time. Um, <laughs> pra- perhaps about a proposal to ban fox hunting or something like that. Um, <laughs> and then, then at number one, there's some man's face that nobody recognises, and there's yeah. no no yes. name caption. So at least there's so, some no. mystery held back to later in the show, because this is that spoiler-tastic era, isn't it, where they basically mm, tell yes. you the whole fucking chart before the show's even begun. 
So, which yeah. I, I always thought, I always think it's a bit of a shame. I don't know about you, but yeah. The key is with all the images, it's the, it's the care and attention to detail. Each one of them has been thought yes. about in the context of the music that, that you know, that, that the song that the person is bringing out, which, you know, just demonstrates a level of attention to detail with Top of the Pops at this time. I'm really glad you've explained the Jackson 5 image because that was the one that confused me. Uh, I was just wondering <laughs> why are they hanging from the undercarriage of a Messerschmitt, you know, that clearly has <laughs> to do with the song. But yeah, every single artist, the Bowie image suits Bowie. The sweet image suits sweet. There's been thought about all of this. Whoever's done this actually knows what they're going Absolutely. on about. Yeah, so yeah. The first, the first two, three minutes of this show are fantastic. And then, unfortunately, yeah. Kenny Everett comes on. Well, and, and unfortunately, we have to listen to this fucking piece <laughs> yeah. of shit. That doesn't help. Fucking hell. Work. This is proper owing love business, isn't it? It is. I mean, I love the loving spoonful, but I blame Daydream for this kind of stuff. Ooh. This stuff that sounds rickety and old school. And like it should yeah. be part of the soundtrack to the Sting or something. It's so nauseatingly cheery and sappy. It could turn even the sappiest yes. person into a real bitter curmudgeon, this record. Yeah, you can imagine David Castier in a boating blazer and a straw hat and a cane. Yeah, exactly. When he's doing this. And you, you don't need that. No, you don't need that. The odd thing about Cassidy, which separates him from the other kind of weenie boppers and teeny boppers that are annoying music journalists quite a lot in this period, is that mm. he's a charmer is David Cassidy. Yes. I was reading pieces about him from 73 by quite spiky writers, you know, like Nick Kent and Chrissy Hind yeah. in The Enemy as well, and also stuff in Cream Mag. And he charms them all. It's all yeah. really positive. The, the Nick Kent thing, he goes to a press conference slash reception and is amused that there's all these kind of uh, seats laid out for potential stars turning up, Rod Stewart and um, uh, Elton John, <laughs> but the only people who turn up are Tony Blackburn and, and Ed Stupart, you know? <laughs> of course. But, but he ends up being completely charmed by him. Him. And, and so does mm. Chrissy Hine and so do many people. He is a, you know, he's not like British teeny boppers, if you like, because he's been trained from a young age to know how to deal with yeah. the press, deal with all of this and, and come across as a charming individual. So when David Cassidy ends up in the 70s, you know, working with Mick Ronson and pe- things like that, um, mm. he he's accepted as doing that as a proper musician because he's just charmed all these music journalists. Whereas, you know, mm. Mark Boland's getting it in the neck every week from the music yes. press. David Cassidy, he's okay. Simon, were you Cassidy aware at the time? Was there, no. was there a Cassidy Osman schism at your school? <laughs> um, I completely missed out on David Cassidy first time round. Um, Uh, But I I just wanted to quickly talk about um, the audience that we see every time um, the the, uh, countdown of the chart reaches, you know, it's done 10 songs. We get a quick bit of the audience dancing to David Cassidy. Mm. And I think it's a very audience heavy episode, this one, which is always a joy, particularly for the 70s when there was still that innocence about it. And not everybody was there trying to be famous themselves. There's that bit when Kenny Everett's pelting through the studio and uh, he, he sort of pushes yeah. these, he sort of barges through all these kids and uh, quite a sparse crowd, mind. But mm, all these, yeah, but it's a fucking huge studio, it's huge, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, th- th- it's cavernous. You could get a hundred extra people in there, and it wouldn't make much of a difference. <laughs> That's the thing I noticed. It's quite sparse, and and you realise how much camera trickery normally goes in to make it look like a rammed crowd but yeah, yeah. All, all these kids in their maxi skirts and their wing collars there's one woman i keep noticing who shaved her eyebrows mm. off um definite right. definite bowie influence i'm going to come back to her in a bit but yeah um <laughs> i completely missed out on david Cassidy. I, I only really became aware of him when he had a hit with the last kiss in the 80s that that song that yeah. um george michael wrote for him 
prior to that, mm. all I knew vaguely was that he was one of the three big Davids in the 70s, and he was the one who wasn't yeah. Bowie and wasn't Essex, right? Um, mm. I never saw The Partridge Family because um, I think it must have been on ITV, and yeah, um, we were yeah. a BBC house and all that. Well, it's still going at the time. It, it was originally picked up by BBC One for the first series. Oh, right. But they dropped it, and it was immediately picked up by ITV, mm. which was round about the same time that David Cassidy started taking off. So, yeah, BBC fucked up there. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, at this time, it's, it's still a mainstay of Saturday tea times across the ITV regions, and it could be on in a couple of days after this episode. Okay. And the Partridge family were doing very well. You know, they they racked up five hits over two years, yeah. including two top ten hits in 1973. Well, you see, they passed me by, the songs, yeah. and so mm. did the show. And from the name of the show, I assumed it was like the Waltons or something. I, yeah. I yeah. didn't realise it was about a singing family. Um, and, in fact, yeah. um, that, that lasted until very recently. I interviewed Michael Imperioli, uh, a.k.a. Christopher Moltisanti from The Sopranos, about his favourite music for the Quietus website. And he chose I Think I Love You by The Partridge Family. Right. And uh, he said that when he was five or six... He thought Keith Partridge, David Cassidy's character, was a real rock star. Um, so this, yeah. uh, Michael said, um, he had long hair and he was this teen idol and girls would chase him. And it was kind of weird that girls looked like they wanted to attack him, like rip his clothes or pull his hair, which I couldn't understand because I thought they liked him. I was quite funny. Yeah. Keith Partridge, by the way, has there ever been a less rock and roll name? It's even no. it's even funnier than no. Alan Partridge. And like, uh, uh, apologies if there are any pop crazed youngsters called Keith Partridge. <laughs> and obviously, David Casty was huge. Um, I found mm. a book the other day called The Big Four, which had the faces of four pop icons on the front mm. in pre- right. pretty awful airbrushed paintings, sort of sub Guy Pellet, or maybe actual Guy Pellet if he was mm. pissed or in a hurry for some quick cash and um <laughs> those four faces were david bowie mark bolan mark spelt with a k um <laughs> michael jackson and david casty so he was on that Fuck. that kind of mount rushmore level mm. for that period mm. uh, which, which must date it very exactly by the way to 1973 the only year in which all four of those would be considered you know the big four yeah. so anyway it's it's in uh, one of the papers from this week in 1973 can't remember if this was in the Melody Maker or Record Mirror, but anyway, that David Casty has had a special suit made by someone called Nudie for Top of the Pops, but it got lost mm. at the airport, right? Oh. So um, I wanted to see what he did end up wearing. So I had a look at that previous episode of Top of the Pops that we've alluded to, the 500th. Yeah. Tony Blackburn gets it wrong, by the way, and calls it the 500th anniversary. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> Unfortunately, we haven't got any uh, episodes of Top of the Pops from 1473. <laughs> <laughs> Cassidy is wearing a perfectly nice white suit and the conceit, as you say, is that he's supposedly just stepped off a Pan Am jet from New York and and Tony Blackburn's interviewing him at the bottom of the steps before he mimes his two songs, two sides of the Mm. single, in front of the jet engine. And um, this one that we're hearing on this top of the pops is technically the B-side and Daydreamer is the A-side because I've got to be pedantically accurate here. The puppy song was actually the B-side on the UK release on the Bell label. Right. It's not listed It's not listed as an AA side. Um, but right. it's being pushed to hit, as a hit song in its own right to extend the chart life of the record. A bit of a sort of crafty mm. uh, Rivers of Babylon slash Brown mm. Girl in the yeah, Ring yeah. situation or, or, mm. or Last Christmas, Everything She Wants. Um, 
although the the picture sleeve does give equal prominence to both songs it's got a picture of david cuddling a massive springer spaniel so um uh so you get the point but on on that 500th episode they they also sh- as you say showed Tony Orlando and Dawn do two songs and a bit of a yeah. so a bit of a faces situation. Remember they let the faces do two, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I know it's a special thing because it's the five hundredth. But I've only I've only watched the Casty ones because I thought maybe we might one day deal with the five hundredth if we can get hold of it. Mm. And I've got to say, right now, look, right, I'm a heterosexual man. Um, <laughs> they they don't come any more heterosexual than me. Let there be no doubt about that. <laughs> Sorry, boys, he's yeah. engaged. I'm like shaking Stevens over here, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, but even I, Simon, heterosexual Price, I felt <laughs> I felt a little bit, a little bit kind of ooh, mm. strange. I felt myself is. turning because he's very dreamy, isn't he? Oh my mm. god! <laughs> but snapping out of that reverie and remembering <laughs> that beautiful breath, oh, remembering I'm meant to be a savage, no nonsense music critic, right? I mean, um, the the puppy song is bollocks, isn't it? I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, but yeah, yeah. it was it, it was commissioned from Nilsson by Paul McCartney for Mary Hopkin, who was on the yeah. on his Apple label, of course. And funny yeah. enough, it reminded me. It's got a bit of a sort of twee, old fashioned, nostalgic nineteen twenties feel that reminds me of when I'm sixty four by the Beatles. <sighs> yes. Yeah, and um, oh, by the way, because of the Nilsson thing, I I do wish David Cassidy's album had been called Cassidy Schmassidy. Um, but it was actually called <laughs> it was actually called Dreams Ain't Nothing More Than Wishes, which is the first line yeah. of the puppy song. And I've I've read the lyrics of the puppy song for hidden meanings. I'm thinking surely it can't just be about a fucking puppy, right? Yeah, yeah it but, must be about drugs. Yeah, yeah, or something. But they, they, or breasts. So, and it's written by Nilsson, and Nilsson was a bit of a head. He was switched on. I thought there's gonna be yeah. some subterfuge. Mm. No. There's like he literally just wants a puppy, right? Yeah. And, uh, and by the way, we've got to say to David Casty, a dog is for life, not just for Christmas. <laughs> this song, yes. this song coming out in October, I think, you know, that's that's dodgy. That really is. Not only is he trying to get 10-year-old girls pregnant, he wants them to to, to pester the mum and dads for a dog. <laughs> exactly. Shame on you. Shit everywhere. Shame on you, Casty. You've got spaniel blood on your hands and shit as well. <laughs> I mean, the fact that this song is so awful and yet David Cassidy remains like immensely popular in this period, there is a difference between the, the, the kind of adulation that Cassidy gets and, say, Beatlemania from a few years earlier. Um, even even when Shea Stadium is full of people screaming at the Beatles, quite a few of them are blokes. Yeah, you can hear the girls screaming, yeah. but quite a few of the people there are blokes. Um, and yeah. quite, you know, Eve, everyone there, I think, is there for, I don't want to say, although for the right reasons, they're there for music, but they are there because they love yeah. the songs and they like the music. Whereas with Cassidy, yeah. the music, well, it's tangentially relevant, really. It's not of primary importance. It's just a part of the package. No. The point of David Cassidy, as, as Simon alluded to, is, yeah, just to look at him. And kind of not even feel sexual feelings, I don't think. For his fan base, it's just about, yeah, maybe we could go down the shops with David Cassidy. Maybe we could go to the park with David Cassidy. Isn't he pretty? That's the extension of it, really. That's as far as it gets. The music is fairly irrelevant. Yeah, he was the original non-threatening boy, wasn't yeah. he? <laughs> he was a bit emo. A little bit emo. I mean, fulfilling the same kind of thing that Frank Sinatra did in 42. You know, everyone's off at war. Mm. Here's the boy next door. He's good looking. You know, that kind of thing. Filling that void. So that that's all he's there for. And the music's fairly irrelevant. Consequently, yeah. this song, fuck me. It, it, mm. It's awful. And the way they cut away, as Simon mentioned as well, the, the way they cut between the countdown and the audience is really odd as well. Because they've got Gilbert O'Sullivan, <laughs> hairy bloke, 
mouth open, mm. singer-songwriter. Then they cut to a girl in the crowd. And then they cut back to Guy Darrell in the countdown in exactly the same pose as Gilbert O'Sullivan. Yeah. So it's like both of those guys are looking at that girl. And it, it's just a really weird yeah. effect that's going on there. Like gawping at her, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. That, that's the kind of vibe that comes across. I mean, I presume they cut to the to the girl to break up the similarity of the image because yeah. Guy Darrell's a boring mm. singer-songwriter. Gilbert Sullivan's a boring singer-songwriter. They're both in exactly the same position. I wonder if it was deliberate or accidental, but it was the mm. only distraction from this fuck-awful record, really. Guy Darrell looks like he could be Kings of Leon's dad. <laughs> As Cassidy was in London last week for Top of the Pops, Melody Maker took the opportunity to have a quick interview because they, you know, they cover everything. Mm-hmm. There was an advert in the National Newspapers for Melody Maker about David Cassidy, and there's an illustration of him. And fucking hell, doesn't he look like Tucker Jenkins? <laughs> he said that he only had 10 more weeks on filming for the Partridge family, and then he was fucking off. And he was going to take a month off, and then he was going to make plans for a world tour and decide what to do with his life after that. And uh, contrary to what the UK papers were saying, no, he wasn't married. No, he wasn't going to retire. No, he doesn't have acne problems. And no, he's not involved with drugs. (laughs) Not anymore anyway. In an early interview for Rolling Stone, they talk about him having a spliff and how he used to get involved in drugs when he was at high school and everything. But no, don't do that shit anymore. He's probably choosing what he says according to the readership, isn't he? Yeah. He's making himself look cool to the Rolling Stone guys. I think his admittance was, I have taken drugs, but I don't do them anymore. And he's also mentioned the fact that one of his friends overdosed and died. And that's often sort of focused in on by reporters wanting to dig a little dirt. But they can't. He's squeaky clean, really. He also appears, as he does every week at the moment, in the latest issue of Looking, in a comic strip uh, alongside On the Buses, The Tomorrow People, The Fen Street Gang, Follyfoot, Doctor in Charge, and Les Dawson is Super Flop. <laughs> and uh, this week, him and Danny Bonaduce are on a fishing holiday and they've found some uh, stolen jewellery just when the thieves have come out of jail to pick it up. <laughs> so they have to hide in a cave and, and a cougar has a go at them. <laughs> An actual four-legged one, not so. <laughs> the cover of this week's looking is uh, it's a bit interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Gary Glitter, do you want to touch him? <laughs> oh, God. There's a four-page feature which begins, while G Glitter Esquire is working his tonsils to the bone on the continent, we're going to find him a wife. After all, he's not getting any younger. And what with all those satin socks to mend, Lurex shirts to wash and iron, and sequins to sew back on, he definitely needs a better half. Oh my God. And there's a competition where the star prize is a dinner date with Gary Glitter. Fuck me. <laughs> in looking. Uh, Concerned Mother of Exeter was onto something there. I yeah, that, yeah that, that cover, Gary Glitter, Do You Want to Touch Him, is the very definition of that hasn't aged well. But it's <laughs> arguably not as funny as um, the cover of Beeb magazine I saw the other day, Beeb magazine being the yes. uh, sort of junior Radio Times thing, which had Gary Glitter hanging out with Roland Browning from Grange Hill. Yes. I'm just trying to nonce you, Roland. <laughs> <Back here now. laughs> Did you see, right, Gary Glitter? Gary Glitter was trending the other day because uh, people were outraged about him getting the COVID vaccine. Yeah. Basically, idiots who don't understand how viruses work, you know, mm, or, the, mm. or the bad people can pass it on to good people. Fuck's sake. Mm. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that, that Beeb article was Gary Glitter teaching Roland to be a vegetarian so he wouldn't be so fat. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
<laughs> See, vegetarianism, Simon, that's what it makes you do. Yeah, yeah, him and Hitler, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, but this song, fucking hell, absolute cat shit. It makes Daydreamer sound like Welcome to the Terror Dome, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, the puppy song slash Daydreamer jumped six places to number two, and a week later it ripped this week's number one off the summit of Mount Pop, staying there for three weeks before giving way to I Love You Love by Gary Glitter. The follow-up, If I Didn't Care, spent two weeks at number nine in June of 1974, by which time David Cassidy's latest world tour was marred by calls for him to be deported from Australia after a teeny bopper fracas at the Melbourne Cricket Ground, a half-hour BBC special being scrapped after a technician strike, and the death of a 14-year-old girl in a pre-gig crush at White City, which contributed to his decision to quit touring. He'd score three more top 20 hits across the mid-70s before concentrating on an acting career, starring in the NBC police show David Cassidy, Man Undercover in 1978. But he made a comeback in 1985 when The Last Kiss got to number six in March of that year and spent the rest of the 80s in musicals such as Blood Brothers, Time and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat until he died of kidney failure in Florida at the age of 67. But before we put David Cassidy away, the final word has to go to Mander, age 12 of Liverpool, who wrote a poem that was published in the Liverpool Echoes All Your Own Kids section this week. Oh my God. David Cassidy is the best. He's the one above the rest. (laughs) David really is great. He's even better than my best mate. (laughs) David Cassidy forever. I like no one else. Never. David Cassidy sings so good. I'd love him if I could. (laughs) I'll take it all back. All those letters about Top of the Pops were spot on. (laughs) There's also a letter from Joan, 12, of Kirkbear, who believes that football hooligans should be punished by being made to sit on the touchline at games with blindfolds and earplugs on so they have complete (laughs) sensory deprivation. But, But before we go, I really need to read this. From Karen, age 12 of Formby, because it's the most 70s poem ever. It's called, The Colour Brown is All Around. Brown is the colour of dead grass. It's also the colour of brass. Brown is the colour of my bed. It's also the colour of the shed. Brown is the colour of my hair. It's also the colour of a damaged pair. Brown is the colour of my eyes. It's also the colour of meat in Pies. <laughs> if only I could have a friend Stick with me until the end To walk along beside me Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, my darlings. It's me, Anna Mann, actress, singer, welder. Gotta have a backup. I've been in everything, my darlings, and I've been cut from most things. However, I will not be cut from one thing, and that is my own podcast, Talking to Actors with Anna Mann where I meet those rarest of creatures, the actors. That's Talking to Actors on The Great Big Owl. Uh, Well, there I was, mucking out the pigs and milking things we don't mention, and they said, come on, top of the bops, lad. So I stuffed me straw into me back pocket and rushed down to London town to be with you all. And here, the second act on the show that you're going to love. What, what? It's the ELO! With a flower between his teeth and clutching his script next to a black and white illustration of a 30s flapper's head and in front of a bloke with massive side beasts in a purple waistcoat and a Leeds United bobble hat who ruins the effect somewhat tells us that he's pegged it over from the farm, presumably his as he was living on one at the time, to present this week's Top of the Pops. He then raises an arm towards the stage and introduces Showdown by ELO. We've covered ELO a time or two on chart music and this, their third single, is the follow-up to their cover of Roll Over Beethoven, which got to number six in February of this year. It's their last single for Harvest Records and essentially a stopgap single between albums while they get their feet under the table with their new labels. Warner Brothers over here, United Artists in America. It made its debut on the UK charts at number 44 five weeks ago, then soared 15 places to number 29, soared another 15 places to number 14, then dropped to number 16, but rallied the week after to get to number 12 last week. And this week it's a non-mover, but no matter. Here they are. In the studio. Oh, yes. As mentioned, we've covered ELO before, but it's always been at the arse end of their career, isn't uh-huh. it? You know, the rock and roll is king and old on tight and all that kind of stuff. This is proper ELO in my mind. Yeah. And the first proper ELO single. It's brilliant, this. 
It's absolutely brilliant. So simple and so hypnotic and with such startling mm. sounds in it. I love the middle bit when it goes from kind of being an R&B sound into almost like art rock. And then it comes back mm. into the main groove via a properly psychedelic wall of noise. It's just yeah. a brilliant, brilliant start to the show. And one of their best songs. And, and you know, a really striking visual start to the show as well because of Jeff Lynn. Yes. He truly looks none more Jeff Lynn than he does <laughs> in this episode. His hair is... He's proper butch in Theatre of Blood, isn't he? <laughs> dishy, dishy hair, baby. His hair is so thick, you really could lose a, a fairly substantially sized marsupial in it. It's just just enormous and his appearance here i think the reason i'm talking is because i know that uh, our resident um cmp elo um expert (laughs) is is gagging to come in but i just want to get in what i want to say um you know Mm. i think it's important to note that i think jeff lynn's appearance here really crystallizes something i think that's crucial to all um Brummagen bands from this period mm. and I take that from me like a wizard and Slade all the way through to the likes of Sabbath and eventually Priest this with Jeff Lynne you don't get the feeling as you do with most of the front men in these bands that what you get the feeling is these are professional rock stars rather than sort of mm. auteur like rock stars they don't take the work yeah. home with them do you know what I mean? It's something they do, not no. something they are. They clock on almost. And then at the weekends, yeah. you can kind of see these people, you know, down the pub being normal. People like, you know, Noddy Older, Jeff Lynn, Roy Wood. Mm. They're not, I mean, despite Roy Wood's appearance in The Countdown, looking like some sort of glam punk, almost ahead of his time. They're not yeah. faces that are going to sort of stop you in your tracks like a Bowie or a Bolan with their kind of elfin androgyny. You never got the sense that these no. people walk <laughs> off stage and take their art with them, if you like, and that their life and art are somehow confused in their minds. No, these are big, hairy blokes who see being Mm. a pop star as making amazing records, and this is an amazing record. Getting, Getting really togged up to perform them, particularly on telly, and that's it. And that attitude about stardom, it allows for self-deprecation and fun rather than kind of anguish or torment. And with all of these bands, I mean, even with Jeff Lynne, everyone knows that ELO is kind of Jeff Lynne's baby a little bit. And he's, he's the mm. creative kind of mainstay of it. But it still feels like a collective. That's the thing with ELO. Um, there's this warmth and collectivism yeah. of an orchestra playing repertoire rather than the front man being a focal point kind of wailing about their pain so there's that nicely depersonalized sense of the music as if it simply emanates from the hum of electricity that happens when you flick the elo switch on and this just comes out and i think that's part of the appeal of a lot of these brummager bands amazing looking outlandish kind of pop stars but you do get the sense at at the weekend they'll be down an m&b pub sinking a pint of brew 11 there's that there's that lovely mix uh this is actually become because of exposure to this episode i think it's becoming my favorite ELO single um more than living thing uh, which was my previous favourite. I know this is probably all sacrilege to Simon, but um, no, you know, no, no. The, 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 it, it's something. There's something so hypnotic and minimal about this. It mm. makes me think of oddly. Uh, Can't get you out of my head by Carly Minogue. It's got a kind of yeah. just an intent and a directness, but also this this oddity to the sound. I really, really enjoyed this performance and a great start to the show. I knew of this song, but when this popped up on this episode of Top of the World, I was shocked because this sounds like. 1976, not 1973. Mm, yeah, yeah. They seem ahead of their time already. Oh, sorry, I thought the price was going to come Simon, in. Simon, I can't hear you. Yeah, well, 
Pray silence, please, for the electric light <laughs> orchestra. <laughs> yeah, um, as as I've well, established, well, as I've established on uh, previous chart music, um, I think Jeff Lynne is genius, and yeah. and I've also mentioned before he was this sort of aspirational Jesus figure to me as mm. a child. He was somebody I thought <laughs> I might grow up to be if all went well. If I just let my hair grow and got the right pair of sunglasses. I might become this kind of chilled, zen, modern adult one day with this mm. serenely laid back and blissfully benign countenance. Best case scenario, that's the adult I thought I might become. Uh, and I wrote about oh. all this when I reviewed DLO live in Hyde Park in 2014 for The Quietus. And I, I don't often on here um, tell people to go and read my stuff, but I am going to say do go and look at that one. Um, The headline's The Jesus of Uncool because I'm really proud of it and it conveys my thoughts about Jeff Lynne in ways maybe I can't even do on a podcast. But the last time we we did talk about Yellow on here, um, as as you kind of hinted at, we we talked about one of their lesser songs, Night Rider. Um, And I'm really grateful that today we're getting to talk about one of their god tier greats so thanks al you've pulled it out of the bag here um showdown might be my favorite elo single or it's certainly top three along with telephone line and don't bring me down um when when i interviewed uh, jeff lynn in 2015 also for the quietest um he told me showdown was his favorite of all so you Mm. know uh, we're in we're in good company rating that one so highly tell you another thing when i first started sort of collecting or like retro collecting elo singles um i suppose um it would have been don't bring me down was the one that i bought uh, when it came out and i thought oh, i'm gonna buy through their oldies mm. getting them from sort of secondhand shops and stuff and i saw the t- title showdown i bought it i thought it was sweet talking woman i got i got confused i thought it was showdown sweet talking woman ah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got this kind of um yeah this song merge in my head but um what we have on showdown is a white british rock act incorporating black american funk and soul into their sound yes. And this is this important to note. It's a couple of years ahead of Bowie's Young Americans, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but they're infusing that funk and that soul with a specifically British, and I don't know if you'd agree being Midlanders, but you could even say a specifically Brummy mood of sadness and dread. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, mm. So when, when he's singing, it's raining all over the world, it's probably just raining all over the West Midlands, you know. This, <laughs> yeah. th- and this this theme of, of rainfall has always stayed with him. It's a rainy night in Tipton. Exactly. <laughs> when when ELO had their comeback album, there was a track called Love and Rain. And then on the second comeback album, a track called Down Came the Rain. So he's obviously obsessed with rainfall. And that mood, that kind of mm. sadness and dread is, is real and very Birmingham, I think. Um, J- Jeff Lynn is almost... Like Ozzy Osbourne, um, his vocal in its tone here, I think. Um, s- some people don't agree with me when I say that, but uh, but I don't think it's the first time either. I think on one oh five three eight overture, um, the f- the first DLO single is very Sabbath to my ears. Uh, by the way, that kind of minor key dystopian funk groove that they lock into here is one that I think Pink Floyd revived six years later on Another Brick in the Wall. Mm. In the um, the interview I did with, with Jeff Lynne, um, I asked him about the way that he puts chords together to provoke an emotional response. Ah, uh, yes. Because his songs always have this kind of yearning quality, and I think it's all about the chords. And he said, 
I'll take that as a compliment, a yearning quality. That is my whole thing about music. It's chord sequences, how to get the next chord to be great. So you go, oh, that's nice. And it sometimes makes the hairs on your neck stand up if it's good enough. Even if it's not a song yet, I'm always just stringing chords together and imagining the melody going through it. Mm -hmm. So that's how he works. He works chords first. And and, uh, in terms of chord sequences that hit you emotionally, I think Jeff Lynne was only bettered in the 70s by Benny and Bjorn from ABBA. Um, I don't think anyone else came close. That That's his genius. There was an interview with Jeff Lynn that I read where he said the first time he discovered chords was uh, he was a kid and he was uh, walking with his dad to work, to his dad's workplace, and there was this massive pipe in the road and he said, oh, look at this, son, and he, he just stuck his head in, in the pipe and just hummed a few notes and it came back as a chord. Wow. Birmingham there for you. The, the, <laughs> yeah. The true cradle of pop. Stick your head in a pipe. Yeah. <laughs> he he also told me he doesn't like performing live. Right. right. And you can kind of see that here. And Neil's quite right about that, that idea of them clocking off, um, looking like people who are... What, what was your phrase that they, they, they are? I, I said that kind of being a rock star for these guys, it's something you do, not something you are. It's something... Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you, yeah. Because what I like about Yellow is they mostly don't look like rock musicians. They look like musicians in a rock band. Um, By which I mean that they may have grown their hair long, but half of them look like they've been plucked straight from the Birmingham Conservatoire. (laughs) Um, Some of them were classically trained in inverted commas of course uh, mick kaminsky aka violinsky was at the lead school of music um and the cellist right i don't know if you noticed him the camera goes to him a few times he has this look on his face that says yes this is what rock music ought to be like it ought to have strings on it that guy is quite an interesting character is mike edwards not the jesus jones one and uh, he went to the royal academy of music Right. And he played with Barclay James Harvest before ELO snapped him up for a couple of years. Mm. He later changed his name to Swami Deva Pramada right. after becoming um, a devotee of Bhagwan Sri Vajnish, right. right? Along with people like Terence Stamp and uh-huh. Ariana Huffington, Bernard Levin, and this amazed me, Naina, as in 99 Fuck. Red Balloons. Whoa. Uh, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of it about in the 70s and 80s. Mm. Anyway, um, Mike Edwards uh, slash um, Mr. Pramada was the member who was killed in a freak accident in 2009. Oh, yeah. When a cylindrical hay bale oh, rolled down a hill and crushed his van. Um uh, the bassist, who at this point was Mike de Albuquerque, doesn't live up to his spectacular and, no, not to, at all. To, to, to me, obviously <laughs> fake name. I've searched what's his real name, but that, you know, so maybe it was his real name. Um, but he does look like a geography teacher. Um, yes, in his, very in his, much um, so. Spectacles, his mustard roll neck sweater. We're going to see a lot more of those mustard roll neck yes, sweaters later are, on, of yes. course. The same year as this, Mike de Albuquerque released a prog rock solo album called. We may be cattle, but we've all got names, which I didn't have time to check out, but I really want to hear it. Think about it, man. Yeah, just based on the title, I want to hear that. Um, He later played bass on Right Back Where We Started From by Maxine Nightingale, Mm, which is a brilliant, brilliant single, of course. But yeah, he doesn't look very rock starry. The only rock and roll looking guy is Jeff Lynne himself. And as Neil pointed out... (laughs) At this point, Jeff Lynne's head is almost entirely hair. <laughs> it's entirely hair or, or sunglasses. Yes. There's hardly, apart from the yes. hair and sunglasses, there's hardly any actual face. It's impossible to tell if he's good looking. No. The BBC helped to rock star him up a bit more with 
this psychedelic red solar flare effect on his fingers and, um, mm. and the fretboard and on the guitar solo. I mean, if you open Dave Lee Travis's mouth and put a grenade in it and then closed it, <laughs> he, he'd eventually look like Jeff Lynne <laughs> on top of the pops in 1973. And if he didn't, well, you're still doing God's work there. You, know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. you could make so many jumpers out of Jeff Lynne's hair at this time. <laughs> or stuff a mattress, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yes. It's interesting, though, what Simon said about it having that black American sound. It absolutely does. It sounds like something that could be on black American yes. radio. And Simon's right that, you know, yeah. yeah, I mean, Bowie doesn't start doing that till 75. Mark Boland doesn't start doing that until the next album after 73, you know, yeah. Zinc Alloy and all that. So ELO way ahead of their time here. Yeah. And at the time, they were seen as the offcuts of Wizard. Well, they're now free sons would to just just go for it and yeah. and what what I find odd with the yellow is that is the record collections that they turn up in they're a very quite a pop band ELO in the 70s lots of big mm. big singles uh, but the, the record collections that I used to see them in of parents of my, my, my mates and that you know the rest of their record collections was all Thin Lizzy and Saxon and stuff like that quite heavy stuff and yet ELO yeah. were actually seen as part of that in a weird way they they found their way into the collections of yeah your Midlands metal fans just as much as they did the kind of mainstream pop audience they had that hold I mean obviously because some of the songs mm. rock but there's just something, yeah, that, 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 that across the board appeal, really, especially with songs like this. It is just fucking magical. And that cellist that Pricey was talking about, the look on his face when it comes out in the middle section and you hear those strings kicking in again, it's a beautiful moment. It, it's one of the highlights of the episode, this. Mm. We see a lot of the crowd in this clip, don't we? Or rather, we sort of don't because the camera moves through the crowd and they scatter like pigeons. And, and yes. in this clip, you really notice how few people there are i reckon maybe 35 or 40 max mm, and mm. and it's weird yeah. that they're allowing us to see that on top of the pots we see a lot of bare floor in this episode it's it's mm. a bit like you know whipping away the wizard's curtain on um no pun intended on wizard there but <laughs> yes. uh, on on this episode mm. um it's like we're almost seeing like the making of top of the yeah. pops yeah, rather yeah. than the actual show we're getting glimpses we shouldn't be getting and it's it obviously yeah. that starts at the very beginning with kenny everett rampaging down the backstage corridor but it it seeps into the whole show um at one point in this clip you see another camera maneuvering into position yeah. over yeah, yeah, Jefflin's yeah. shoulder yeah and uh oh that that David Bowie woman I was talking about with no eyebrows she's right down the front she's by the pianist Richard Tandy and I know she's given it some proper Wigan Casino dance moves to ELO <laughs> yeah. which is fantastic <laughs> and the piano's actually in the audience it's not right. on the mm. on the platform or the stage uh-huh. or anything it's the first sign as well i mean the audience make an incredibly good account of themselves in this episode they're they're, they're mm. mostly as far as I'm, I'm concerned anyway dressed brilliantly and they're, and they're dancing well i know i've said in the past all oh, the sighted british people enjoying music is always a bit embarrassed i don't feel embarrassed at all in this episode um the response to the music is genuine and it's just a delight i could just watch the audience forever um yeah all the different stories, yeah. all the different clothes going on there. Um, yeah, uh, something sadly lost to later Top of the Pops. This is why this period is such a zenith. We get to see these people. So the following week, Showdown dropped six places to number 18. And the follow-up, Mama Bell, got to number 22 in April of 1974. 
They spent much of 1974 recording a live LP which was so badly marred by technical issues that it was only released in German air <laughs> and the studio LP El Dorado which yielded no hit singles. But they roared back into the charts in 1976 when Evil Woman got to number 10 in January of that year kicking off a run of 20 top 40 hits before they wound down in 1986. Darling, what are you doing after the show? I mean, we've got a rave going on in a pigsty, if you're fancy. Oh, sorry. Um, yes, uh, that was Raining All Over the World by And Now We Have Yellow. And that was And Now We Have Elton John with his latest big hit. Uh, goodbye, Yellow Rose of Kentucky. Everett, skulking by a bank of lights, chats up the crumpet before pretending to be caught out and then gabbles on in his piss-takey BBC RP voice as he introduces Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. Oh my God, fathers, <laughs> that Kenny interlude there. Oh man, the, the, his introduction yes. is tawdry and not worthy of Top of the Pops. Um, it's like a late night thing almost. The sight of a gay man pretending to be a heterosexual man by aggressively propositioning a young girl isn't exactly comfortable or remotely amusing. And then he messes his words up in a really shit, unfunny way. We're only about 10 minutes into the episode and Kenny Everett is already immensely Mm. tiresome. Yeah. He's intent on getting his bits in, isn't he? He is, but um, yeah, that that bit where he's chatting up the blonde girl, calling her darling, and inviting her to a rave at the pigsty. Now she looks quite uncomfortable, yeah. and and now she we does. know, of course, these days that Top the Pops was literally a crime scene when certain other presenters were on the prowl. Right? Mm. As far as we know, Kenny Everett wasn't guilty of that. So does it make it okay? that he's sleazy and pervy with young girls because we all know he's gay. I'm saying no. Well, we didn't know at the time. That he's gay. Well, come on. <laughs> but, but yeah, he's doing this this running joke, isn't he, of refusing to say the song titles correctly, doing his bit, um, as you say. So he calls it Goodbye Yellow Rose of Kentucky. Um, and it's as mm. if he either has or thinks he has special dispensation right um yeah it's like exactly. you know and this this goes back to the the thing of him being allowed to come pelting down the corridor at the start of the show and and do everything a little bit differently and and that kind of northern pig farmer act that he's doing we've talked about it before and, and th- this is something that hasn't changed he, he still looks like abraham lincoln and he still thinks that speaking <laughs> in a northern accent is inherently funny yeah i know he's from the north yeah. but that isn't his accent um, uh, yeah, and he switches between that and, as you say, that that um, RP BBC English thing. He chats her up in a very Cockneyish accent, doesn't he? Oh, it's, it's a darling thing. Yeah, yeah, all of that. But yeah, but th- yeah. Th- this whole act that he's putting on, it's in the same vein, I think, as something like Mister Blobby or Rod Tull and Emu, right? It's <laughs> like because, like Mister Blobby, like Emu, yeah. it's consensual chaos. It's it's officially sanctioned disruptiveness. You know what I mean? Um, I'm mm. quite surprised at Robin Nash. 
um, the producer for allowing it because um, he usually seemed to run yeah. a tight ship with not much room for fannying about, mm. despite the worst efforts of people like DLT to make it about them, you know. But mm. yeah, Everett's really going for it here, and I, I don't like it. The thing is, though, you're getting on a radio personality on top of the pops. They're going to act like that radio personality. So, you know, the BBC clearly knew what it was taking on when they invited him to do Top of the Pops. Surely. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and that, that is the eternal tension on a, a lot of Top of the Pops is between the um, the ego of the presenter and the format of the show. Mm. And never never more so than on this one. Yeah. And crucially, his personality on the radio is a painstakingly mm. edited one, and this isn't. So his accent yeah, yeah. slips in and out, and he doesn't really keep hold of it, and he's not scripted it properly. So it's just a mess. And this moment is something that, yeah, will recur throughout the episode. He discomforts the people yeah. that he's talking to. And it's not pleasant to watch. Yeah. You know, for a lot of the Radio One DJs, being on top of the pops would be the absolute goal. Um, I mean, it definitely would be by the late seventies and eighties. But with Kenny Everett, you get the feeling that it's it's almost like being on top of the pops is something that he's got to do if he wants to continue doing what he's doing at the moment. Yeah, yeah. But the the, the show should not be treated so casually. Uh, no, they've got nearly twelve million viewers. You know, yeah. uh, he needs to he needs to sharpen up, and he, he's certainly not doing that. You know, and and if I was a watcher at that time, and if I was older than one years old, obviously I'd be pissed off in a sense at his lack of care. Mm. Where every single other aspect of the show is so fine tuned to perfection, his is just the, this messy thing in the middle of it, and it really doesn't work. We've already covered Reg Dwight in chart music number thirteen, and this, the second single from the LP of the same name, which came out last week, is the follow up to Saturday Nights All Right for fighting which got to number seven for two weeks in july of this year after entering the charts at number 43 at the end of september it soared 27 places to number 16 and this week it's nudged up four places to number 12 and because elton is currently preparing to play the mid-south coliseum in memphis later tonight here's some footage of him arsing about in hollywood and this is the beginning of the crest of Elton John's career, isn't it? He's currently borrowing the Starship, Led Zeppelin's plane for his current American tour. And the first thing he did was change the colour scheme because he didn't like what they'd done Fuck to the sake. plane. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, it's it's no secret that Elton John makes me almost physically sick. Um, <laughs> being open about my dislike of Elton John has had consequences for me. Um, mm. It's held me back in my career, but I can't lie. Um so anything I say from now on must be taken in that context. This, of course, <laughs> is the title track from his big album, which is the 86-minute double that has loads of the hits on it, um, including this being the title track. And and if the most irritating thing about Elton John, to me, is his faux-American singing voice, that whole, goodbye, England's rose, that mm-hmm. thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um then that's nothing compared to his faux Jamaican accent on this album's novelty reggae song, Jamaica Jerk Off, oh, right? yes. mm, which mm, makes yeah. Sandy Shaw's infamous reggae oh, number oh, oh. on her TV show look like a paragon of racial sensitivity. By the way, <laughs> I see that that Sandy Shaw clip has been removed from YouTube, but yes. we remember, we remember. Mm. So have, have you heard Jamaica Jerk Off? No, I haven't. Fucking hell's bells. First thing you do after this show is, you know, you know, there's that, that Seaside Woman song by Linda McCartney. Yes. With the dodgy Jamaican accents. It's even 
grimmer than that. Um, <gasps> Jesus. One thing I'll say for Elton John, of course, uh, and I've said this before, is that he gave us all the biggest laugh of lockdown when we're dill dandy. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what I enjoyed about that was that Elton John was making Elton John look like a prick without meaning to. But <laughs> but, we've, but we've talked about that already. So basically get the idea that I hate the cunt, right? So, so can I surprise you when I tell you I've got time for this song? This is one of the few songs of his, I think, that dares to dream, to almost scrape the sky, you know, mm. um, with the melody and just the whole production of it, even if it then comes crashing back to earth with that line about a horny back toad, that bit. Mm. But more, more than that, what struck me watching this was imagining how British viewers would have felt watching this video because yes. it's all this footage of glamorous America. <laughs> yes. Los Angeles in particular, of course. So he's he's teetering about in his stack heels, he visits a, a rodeo tailors, etc. But we're not looking at him. Go through it. Let's go through it in order. Mm. Yeah. Obviously they've not done a promotional video, so the BBC have cobbled this together. I can't imagine his record company putting this out. So mm. we get mm. a close up of Elton's rounded hexagonal glasses. Elton chucking a lime in the air and catching it. Elton lying on the grass, looking at the ground. Elton sat in front of a big photo of Elvis in his gold lame suit. Elton putting a mug on the table, throwing his keys in the air and going out. (laughs) A close-up of an orange on a tree. Elton walking down some steps in some massive silver platforms. Mm. Elton standing by that orange tree, giving the thumbs down to a green one. Elton then picking up a ripe orange and showing it to us. Elton walking on the grass in his blocker boots. Elton getting into a massive American car. A shot of a shop called Drug King on the corner of Hollywood and Vine. Maybe he thought it was called Rug King. (laughs) A big clock going backwards. A Sunset Boulevard sign. Elton patting a big plastic horse and then shaking hands with a bloke in a cowboy hat. A big sign for Nudie's Rodeo Taylors, who made that gold lame suit for Elvis and made uh, the David Cassidy outfit. Oh, yeah. And that bloke's Nudie Cone. Elton inside Nudie's, presumably buying everything. Another shot of Drug King. That clock again, which we now see is for the Hollywood Ranch Market, which was the place where James Dean had some coffee and donuts before he was killed. Oh, right. Yeah. Not exactly the most elaborate promo film, but a glorious chance for the pop craze youngsters in 1973 to have a good, hard stare at America. <laughs> well, that's it, yeah. right? He is in every scene. But we're not looking at him. We're looking past him. Yes. We're looking at America. Yes. There is that moment, uh, the the drug king bit, where the, the camera lingers on the street intersection of Hollywood and Vine. Mm. And nothing really happens. Mm. But nothing needs to, because mm. footage of America was something we could just be hypnotised yeah. by yeah, yeah. At, at that point. Like, that, that scene where he's, he's picking fruit from a tree, citrus yeah. fruits from a tree. Imagine how unfathomably exotic that must yeah. have looked in Britain yeah. right in October 1973 with IRA bombs going off um, the fire brigade on strike Ted Heath announcing pay cuts for everyone yeah. the dark nights drawing in in every sense 
And then you're looking at that. Fucking hell. And there's Elton living that life, and he's rubbing it in our faces. <laughs> living the absolute dream. Yeah. To, to give a sense of his lifestyle at that time, you mentioned the um, the Led Zeppelin jet. Yeah. There's an item in Melody Maker that week about yeah. um, a, a surprise treat that was arranged for him when he got on that jet. He was promised that there would be a cocktail pianist on the plane. When it took off... Out came Stevie Wonder, yes. who'd been stowing yeah, yeah. away in the toilets. <laughs> yeah, but according to his autobiography, his highlight of that tour on that plane was watching his mum watching the in-flight movie, which was Deep Throat. <laughs> and just hell. laughing at her response to everything. This video is no I'm deal dandying, but it, it, no. it, it's, it has this air of... Okay, let's go and make this fucking video nice and early so I can get on with snorting cocaine later, basically. Yes. So they'll literally <laughs> cling to anything he's doing that day as a time waster. So we have that sniffing a lawn. We have him doing this business with a with an orange. I thought it was a lemon, actually. Um, but, um, you know, we could argue. I thought it was a lime, so let's all have a fight about that. <laughs> and yeah. we get him stroking a plastic horse outside the nudie store. And by the time yeah. he leaves the nudie store, he's clearly in such a bad mood with the video man. He just kind of storms out, leaving the video to be nothing but this montage of kind of look, we're in Hollywood proof. It's like a video created as an alibi in a way. Um, Yeah, Yeah, he wants to be having a party, doesn't he? He wants to be throwing a party and telling people not to jizz on the base. This is it. I mean, he's getting this done. He's getting this done so he can go and do what he wants to do. Yeah. Like Pricey, actually, I'm not a big fan of Elton at all. Um, Don't like him much. But Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, I would argue, like this song and maybe Benny Benny and the Jets from this album are Mm. two that I would salvage. But yeah. Um, yeah, beyond that, no, not a big Elton fan. This video, probably the most entertaining thing he's given me in my life, apart from the I'm Dill Danding thing, of course. It's, it's very counterproductive because the song's about him, oh, I'm leaving the rat race, I've had enough of it. Uh, oh, but here's some footage of me mm. enjoying every single fruit of that rat race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in some cases, quite literally. Hey, yeah. At this time, I would have known who Elton John was. But I always saw him as a grown-up thing. And yeah, as I've actually yeah. grown up, he's still a grown-up thing. Yeah. He's still someone I've got no interest in investigating. I don't feel I'm missing out by not owning a Elton John LP. Yeah. But this is all right. It's okay. People swear down by some of his LPs, like Captain Fantastic and mm. that. I just cannot be asked. Yeah. Um, I tend not to explore the musical career of artists who I can see them being introduced by one of the two Ronnies, basically. Yeah. So I, I just don't bother investigating the musical career of him. And he's one of them. He is. He is he's grown-up stuff, isn't he? So the following week, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road nipped up two places to number 10 and would eventually spend two weeks at number six, its highest position. The follow-up, Step Into Christmas, would only get to number 24 in the first week of 1974, but would get to number eight in the first week of 2020, and number eight again in the first week of this shit old year. I hate that song. I just hate the title, Step Into Christmas. As if it was a dog turd. It's a cuckoo in the nest of Christmas songs, because as you say, it wasn't a hit. Right? Yeah. Um, no, yeah. But because it's by a major artist and because it has the word Christmas in the title, it ended up in the 90s on all those best Christmas album ever CDs. Mm. So yeah. you end up here, you ended up hearing it in shopping malls, um, you know, uh, every, every Christmas. And it's become part of the British Christmas, but it wasn't. The British, the British no. public rejected it at the time. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, fuck off. <laughs> and he'd have two more hits from Goodbye Yellow Brick Road with Candle in the Wind, number 11 for two weeks, March of 1974. We won't hear any more of that song. <laughs> yeah. And Benny of the Jets, number 37, October 1976. <laughs> And as Elton stomps off back home to attack his pool table with a paint scraper, we're going to leave it there for now, and we're going to come back tomorrow to continue this episode of Top of the Pop. So, on behalf of Neil Kulkarni and Simon Price, my name's Al Needham, this is Chart Music, you are minted skill. Stay pop craze, why don't you? <laughs> Chart Music. My name's Jason Fleming. The More Than My Past podcast will see me talking to a wide range of inspiring people. People who have confronted and overcome addiction or imprisonment or both and turned their lives around. I did mad things that was hurting myself and hurting other people. Everybody grows up in a house called normal. Heroin addiction and chaos was my normal. Some people don't understand the word moderation and uh, I was definitely one of those people. The More Than My Past podcast. 